every single individual, indigenous, non-indigenous, black, white, etc., we can all benefit from this uh, more complete understanding. That, that's how that's that's the nature of an enlightenment university. And truth is a universal. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature. And I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have Dr. Francis Whittison, who's a uh, academic, studied a lot about First Nations uh, peoples here in Canada. And as a result of her uh, research, uh, she has been experiencing cancel culture like no other, it seems. So, uh, Dr. Whittison, thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you very much for having me. So I just, as we uh, discussed last time, we, we, we talked about just in a general uh, sense of, of what the scholarship and what's happening with respect to the First Nation scholarship. I'm wondering if you could just share with us uh, your experience now as you've been uh, involved in the academy and what's been happening. What are the areas that so many people are finding fault with your writing? Yes, so it started off with Indigenous policy. So um, for many years, uh, Albert Howard and I were, were able to make the arguments that we did. Then starting, I guess, around 2015, uh, things started to become much more difficult. And some of it was due to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission findings and the university's um, adoption of them and, and insistence that they must be kind of incorporated into the university through a process of what's called indigenization. So indigenization is across the country and it essentially argues that various aspects of indigenous culture must be incorporated into all aspects of the university curriculum uh, Some and, and university more generally. Uh, some of these things are not a problem at all, such as, you know, calling buildings by important indigenous figure, you know, the names, changing the names of, of buildings or putting up indigenous artwork and these sorts of things, which makes sense because you'd like to have um, some of the heritage of that area, you know, be present in the university. Um, it becomes difficult when you have um, what's called indigenous ways of knowing, uh, directives to incorporate indigenous ways of knowing into the curriculum. And these ways of knowing um, generally are contrary and conflict with scientific methods and scholarly uh, types of ways of conducting research. So um, they mm. are very subjective. So this is when you, you, you have this fit into wider kinds of uh, what's called this wokeism where um, identity politics has become totalitarian. It's the insistent that the subjective beliefs of various groups that are perceived to be oppressed must be accepted as valid. And indigenization is, is part of this because it's, it's argued that you must accept indigenous ways of knowing as valid um, if you are going to assist indigenous people overcome their oppression. So if you argue against that and say, no, no, this is contrary to the standards we're trying to maintain in a university, you will be accused of being an oppressive person. And this is not very pleasant when this happens to you. So that's the first thing. So people are generally discouraged from 
pursuing anything that's critical of these uh, world, what's called these ways of knowing. Um, but then if you persist in questioning things, even though people are, you know, constantly getting more and more angry at you for doing it, eventually uh, you will be pushed out of the university. And uh, this is sort of what has happened at the University of Lethbridge. This is a very good case study in this demand that indigenous ways of knowing must be accepted as valid. And because I am a critic of uh, indigenous ways of knowing or incorporating indigenous ways of knowing into the curriculum as knowledge, forms of knowledge, it's not a problem if you are just studying indigenous philosophy, for example, or indigenous perspectives, you are studying those perspectives in anthropology or perhaps religious studies. Uh, that That's one thing. But then to say that, you know, indigenous ways of knowing should be incorporated into the biology curriculum, even when this concerns creation beliefs, as opposed to the theory of evolution, that's when we start to have conflicts. And my criticism of indigenous ways of knowing on this basis uh, resulted in me results in me being called an oppressive person, and that um, having me on campus is very harmful to indigenous students. These kinds of arguments, and that's why um, cancellation is bound to occur because of this mentality. Mm. Just by the mere fact that you are expressing your views is reason enough to say, because it's so uh, against the traditional norm, it's uh, heresy, as it were. Um, yes. It is heterodox, right? It's the, it's the idea that you're speaking against uh, what is the normative view, uh, the orthodox view. So yet when we think of universities historically, we've often thought of them as places where you get to uh, bring uh, uh, various ideas together and and debate and discuss. I guess, again, it's also politically um, concerning in the sense that there's a lot of people looking at this as a white colonizer speaking to what a uh, indigenous or first nations people uh, uh, view of the world. And so it's kind of, I'm, I'm assuming that it's a, like, who are you to tell us that the way we've experienced the world is somehow illegitimate? Is that, am I getting anywhere over the target here or is this? Yes, so, so that's a pretty, that, that's generally how it's seen. And so again, to, to accept that way of looking at it, you don't see any, you, you are denying objectivity. So, so generally in the universities 30 years ago, for sure, uh, it would be, we're all human beings sharing uh, sort of enlightenment values. We're going to use reason, evidence, and logic to try to figure out the way the world is. So um, some of us might be more, accurate than others in doing this. Um, some people's methods might be uh, shoddy and it's kind of our job to go and figure out which methods are the best methods so that we can all, everyone, every single individual, indigenous, non-indigenous, black, white, etc., we can all benefit from this uh, more complete understanding. That, that's how that's that's the nature of an enlightenment university and truth is a universal 
with um, the development of postmodernism in the 1960s, the idea is that it was really, uh, there was no objective truth and it was really subjective beliefs that were um, what was valid. Uh, so, and if you made a claim that there was such a thing as an objective truth, that was kind of a power ploy on your part to maintain oppression of various groups. This then allowed, um, you know, sort of certain what's called advocacy studies programs to take root uh, within the academy. One of them was uh, something called indigenous studies. So in indigenous studies, the idea was the subjective beliefs of indigenous people should be accepted as valid. And if you didn't, then you were, as you said, a white colonizer who is intent on maintaining indigenous peoples in this oppressed colonized perspective. Uh, so, so that's generally how things are viewed now. Uh, so if you argue against an indigenous creation myth, uh, and that's not to say uh, you, you're denying people's ability to believe that or anything, like people can believe whatever it is that they want, but if you're going to have curriculum in the university system, you know, indigenous people shouldn't be learning that uh, creation, creationism is valid. Uh, whereas non-Indigenous students are learning the theory of evolution. Um, we've gone through quite a intense political process over the last 50 years saying that, you know, you can have these creation beliefs taught in anthropology and religious studies, but they are not a scientific theory, and so they shouldn't really be part of the, the science curriculum. So, uh, so this is kind of the difficulty is that now th that argument which used to be made for all people is only being made for non-Indigenous people. And then it said, well, Indigenous people should have their own ways of knowing and their own beliefs taught in the courses that they're taking. And that, of course, leads to a lower standard of education for Indigenous students. And we're seeing this now so in the various programs Indigenous students are taking. Okay, so now is this only dealing with the idea of creation? I mean, obviously, within the Western world, we've had uh, various religious communities have, you know, the Christian community, the J Jewish community has their own uh, understanding of creation. But does it, um, is it just limited with, with these kinds of ideas, philosophical, religious positions, or is it, is it now... Oh, going into um, what we would call perhaps the hard sciences. Where where does this go? Or where does it begin? I understand where it begins, obviously, with creation, but where else is it uh, finding itself in the university curriculum that you're, you're saying is a, a concern? Yes. So uh, it is seeping into the hard sciences to some extent, biology being the most uh, significant. Medicine, to some extent, we're seeing this that you know, indigenous healing remedies should be incorporated into medicine for indigenous patients. Uh, it's usually a lower standard for the indigenous, uh, the people who are uh, accessing services. Um, I was at a talk on decolonizing science or something like that, which is just doesn't make any sense, that terminology. Anyway, science is a method that can help any everyone understand the world. And they had a, an elder uh, giving a presentation on how he was going to take uh, biology students to a camp and then, you know, basically 
tell them his views about things, such as the trees come out of dormancy in the spring because the birds are singing to them. So that was one of his beliefs, that he was going to be teaching uh, students at this camp, which I don't think we should be doing in the biology program. I don't think that is a good uh, way to maintain standards of trying to understand um, all the various theories and knowledge that we have in biology, which is immense. There's immense, you, you open up a, a textbook, a botany textbook, and you've got, you know, 300 pages of intense information that, sh that that's what students should be learning, not stories that are not substantiated in, in any way. So, so that, that is happening to some extent. The real target, however, is the humanities uh, and also the social sciences. So there's a lot of uh, disciplines which are under serious threat because of this. My discipline, political science being one, history being another, um, anthropology has been destroyed many, many, you know, not quite a long time ago because it, it's in, in the insistence of the subjective. In terms of history, one of the biggest issues now that we're seeing, which is very, very important, is the uh, what happened with respect to the residential schools historically. Uh, and I am on a research group of about 20 people um, and uh, have contacts with a number of people researching this area, the most famous or the most significant being the researcher Nina Green, uh, who has a who's done immense amounts of historical research on the residential schools. Um, anyway, we're having uh, we need to have debates about what happened in the residential schools, but this has been completely sidetracked by wokeism and the demand that you must accept the views of the knowledge keepers their views of the residential schools. So if the knowledge keepers say that 215 children are buried in the apple orchard in Kamloops, uh, clandestine burials, we must accept that as being true because that is a way to empower indigenous people to do that. And there is no evidence that there are 215 children buried in the apple orchard in Kamloops and it is highly unlikely, highly improbable that there are 215 clandestine burials. It's much more likely that they are the septic tiles that were laid in, uh, you know, about 1920s, right, which would create trenches and that would show up on the ground penetrating radar as anomalies. Anyway, there's been lots of exca excavations at Kamloops and uh, that needs to be taken very seriously and that needs to be investigated objectively to see whether or not these claims of the knowledge keepers are true or not. But unfortunately, because of this politicization that I was talking about earlier, the uh, archaeology department at Simon Fraser University, which is about, you know, uh, is has some responsibility for doing research on the Kamloops case, it has been subjected to a gag order by the Kamloops band, not to talk about the quote-unquote unmarked graves. So it's part again of this research protocols where you've got to just sign things and abide by whatever it is the band wants you to say because they've got a political interest in asserting that there are these children's remains in the apple orchard when it is, okay. we need to have excavations there to determine this. And, and so there has been no excavations of any sort? 
No, not at Kamloops. There have been excavations in other areas which have not turned up anything other than um, there are uh, graves in cemeteries. So there are unmarked graves in cemeteries because you had marked graves and then the crosses deteriorated. So they are unmarked graves, but no one is surprised at finding these graves in cemeteries. The issue is the clandestine burials as to whether there are children buried uh, who were presumably, uh, there was some kind of foul play involved in these burials, but there has been no evidence whatsoever uh, to support any clandestine burials. And we have no evidence even of a parent who is claiming that their child disappeared and never came home. Um, the, the quote unquote missing children that is being talked about often in these cases is um, we just don't know who's buried in the unmarked graves just because the, the crosses have deteriorated. So it's a process of trying to match up the unmarked graves in the cemeteries with the names, the identities of people who are buried there. That's the kind of exercise, not that you have children murdered and put into these clandestine burials in cases like Kamloops. But that's a very good example of, we need to have academic research done on this area, but that is being prevented because of, you know, mm -hmm. wokeism and the demands that uh, you must accept the views of the knowledge keepers. Okay. So uh, your position is, is that, okay, so we, we need to uh, open this to, you know, uh, empirical observation to uh, verify whether or not those claims are accurate. And you're saying that um, there are groups out there who are saying, no, we just need to accept that that is in fact the case. Yes. And if you don't accept oh, wow. it, you are what is called a residential school denialist, which is drawing parallels with being a Holocaust denier. So right. obviously right. being a Holocaust denier is not a legitimate academic position because we have tremendous evidence that right. the Holocaust occurred and right. all sorts of people were exterminated. But in the case of the Kamloops uh, circumstance, we don't have any evidence that there are children buried clandestinely. So that that is still a very much of an open question. But we've been waiting now, um, going on two years, for the excavations to begin. I believe in January 2022, so that was a year and a half ago, um, Manny Jules, who was the uh, was a chief, he was not the chief now, but he was a, historically a chief of the band, said they were going to do excavations, that the families had agreed, but then that's never happened because for the obvious reason, it's not really a, a winning proposition because we already have the entire country believing that there are 215 children buried in Kamloops and if we did excavations, it's it's you know opens up the possibility that 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 might not be true, and it's highly un, highly likely that that is not true, which means there's going to be a lot of embarrassed people and pointing of fingers as to how did we get led down this garden path with no one demanding any evidence uh, for what it, it has occurred there. So. Okay, so we've got a, a situation where we've got very um, obviously fundamental differences of how we determine what is true and what isn't.
is it a is it a situation now where we are more or less at a point where we are simply unable to bridge the gap and we are now to just simply see how things uh, transpire. Uh, in in other words, things. How, how can I say this? It's it's like when we have diametrically opposed views. Sometimes it is a matter of waiting until experience, circumstances occur that will allow us to be able to see what is indeed the truth of the matter. And that is it now a matter of stepping back and saying, okay, if that's what you want to believe, if that's what you want to do, you just, you know, carry on knowing full well that perhaps there's going to be some uh, circumstances that's going to create some pain, as it were. Uh, there's going to be some serious consequences, you know, unintended consequences, consequences that many would say, okay, I saw that train coming. I could see the train train wreck is, you know, in the distance there. I can see it. And is it a matter of us collectively experiencing such tragedies or such uh, experiences that says, oh, okay, well, maybe this was uh, an inappropriate understanding or like, how do we, how do we find ourselves in this new world where wokeism, as you have so, you know, as you articulated, we're going to yeah. see some crashes. Uh, we're going to see some things that are just simply, you know, uh, one of the things that I find fascinating is that uh, when we reject history, when we reject the wisdom of the past, when we reject um, the uh, evidences, the um, presuppositions that we have with respect to the world, what it is, that we reject all that has gone behind us because we somehow think we are more enlightened or we're more, we, we are better off than previous generations that it's almost like we have to relearn those things. We have to relearn what it means uh, or why logic is important, why uh, the understanding of determining truth um, empirically in, with science, uh, why it is so important that we understand how we ought to live, those uh, proverbs or those uh, words of wisdom that have been handed down to us. And, and it seems almost like we have to relearn all of that. Yes. Well, we have to beat back uh, wokeism and, and that means uh, attacking postmodernism, which is this prizing of the subjective over the objective that that has to happen. And in order for that to happen, we have to understand that, the pursuit of truth is not oppressive. Like this is a big problem that we have now mm. is that when you try to just make the argument that I was just doing about the unmarked graves, that it's important for everyone to understand whether there's 215 children buried there. That's right. It's not an indigenous thing. It's not a non-indigenous thing. It's a human thing to figure out what happened historically but what and, is occurring is that we're being told that, you know, 
that it's really the, the band's view of things which should be accepted because this will somehow enable them to uh, overcome their oppression and become full participants in Canadian society. So that kind of logic which wokeism has instilled in us, which is a deference to groups that are claiming to be oppressed. Not that we shouldn't recognize that they're oppressed and that there should be remedies for that, because that is very, very important. We need to do that, but that does not mean denying the truth and shying away from evidence, you know, reason, logic, the tools of the enlightenment, which were so effective in enabling humanity as a whole to progress. So I think that we have sort of lost courage in things like the scientific method, things like philosophy, um, these kinds of tools that took thousands of years to develop. And we need to have defenders of that who now speak up, but because they've been so intimidated by all these activists who have taken control of the universities, um, it's become very, very difficult to be able to do that. So, so that's kind of the challenge right now. And that's what I'm really working on is, you know, trying to talk to people and get them to understand that, you know, demanding evidence and, you know, pursuing the truth that, you know, these are not contrary to um, trying to bring about equality in society. Uh, these, these things are very, very separate kinds of, in fact, in order to bring about equality, you need to have evidence based something based on evidence to be able to do that otherwise it's just some kind of wishful thinking that you're engaged in so if you want to make you know society more equal what kinds of policies will enable you to do that in order and in order to figure that out you have to use reason evidence and logic to be able to see whether something's working or not so we really are not right. thinking about things very clearly and that is because hmm. wokeism has you know, zapped our brains and made us afraid and, and no one really is able to think through many of these problems because they're too intimidated and afraid. Right. And, and I guess my, my thinking is what do we do if we're caught in a stalemate? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and that's kind of where I sense we are at this moment. Like, uh, you know, I, I looked up on uh, some of the writings that were opposed to your positions and various people, you know, on Twitter and so forth. They uh, raised all kinds of ob objections like, why should we allow this person to come to our university when she doesn't even uh, believe that residential schools uh, caused all kinds of pain for uh, Indigenous people? And it's like... Uh, like it, it, it's already uh, uh, in the minds of so many people, particularly young people, that it, it already is. And because it is, even mm. though they don't, do not have any firsthand knowledge of it, nor do they have they looked at it as from the view that, that you have, it says, okay, look, let's, let's look and see whether or not, in fact, it is a situation where we have all of these unmarked graves and people are just, okay, well, that's, it's almost like um, there is a a mentality here that the majority hold. We refer to it as a mob mentality, but it's the idea. Okay, well, because someone said it, and they're uh, you know 
are somehow authoritative or they have social capital to to be able to make such statements that therefore we must all accept it without without questioning and 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 you're questioning and the people around are saying well no we can't question it so i guess my my thinking is okay so if we're at this stalemate what now is it it takes a lot of bravery uh, to stand up and say, hey, guys, this is wrong. We really need to have a look at this. Um, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of, you know, obviously you're going to get a lot of heat and you have gotten a lot of heat uh, with respect to your position. And I'm wondering if you could just share with our audience just exactly what's been happening to you um, as a result of these unpopular views that you hold. Well, now it's it's very difficult for me to occupy a space within the universe, and I'm not sure if I will be able to. Um, we are now uh, with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. We are going to be uh, traveling to a number of universities and public libraries to discuss the question of whether wokeism threatens academic freedom or not. So um, that is, that's part of the strategy is mm. to make it so that universities have to discuss these matters. That doesn't mean that everyone in the university has to. If people don't want to be involved in the discussion, they can go and do something else. But we can't have a situation mm. in universities where there's a small a gr any group of people that is saying we don't want to hear these views therefore we're not going to allow these people to speak uh, that, that's not how hmm. universities academic universities function and if we cannot successfully challenge this we're not going to have academic universities anymore they're going to be activist universities and only certain opinions will be allowed so what what's happened is there, there hasn't really been a recognition of the corrosive effect of wokeism on universities. So there's this kind of mm. uh, argument that you see, and it's usually with what's called diversity, inclusion, and equity. So diversity, inclusion, and equity, those terms sound very nice, but the way they're being defined means that what you're dealing with is, is wokeism, right? So diversity means uh, you, you've got to have representation from all these different groups, identity groups, and inclusion means that if you say something that is upsetting to a member of th these identity groups, then you should be excluded from the university. So it's, it, it sounds good, but it, it, it's very totalitarian in its character. And so what we need to do is say, um, Th that kind of diversity, inclusion, and equity ideological position, that ideological position is inconsistent. It conflicts with open inquiry, freedom of expression, and academic freedom. And, and, and mm. people haven't realized that yet. They talk about kind of balancing these two things as if you can kind of have them both operating together. But what happens is that you have the the academic character, the intellectual character of the university is seriously compromised when you promote those kinds of ideological features in a university. That's not to say that people can't believe that themselves. 
And that's what used to happen is it was a position held by some academics and some students, but now it's being demanded that the entire university accept that. So that's the first thing is to recognize that conflict that exists. Mm. When we recognize that conflict, we can then say, okay, well, what kind of university do we want to have? Do we want to have an academic university where you can explore ideas, you can follow the evidence wherever it leads, or do you want to have a woke university where there's one position that has to be accepted, and if you don't accept that, you're, you have to leave and you're, you're not going to be able to be at that university anymore. So there are two very different visions of universities and that, that needs to be understood. And, and I'm, I am battling hard with the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, um, the National Association of Scholars in the, in the United States, the Free Speech Union, these groups, they see it as an academic university and they're fighting for the academic university. So what we need to do hmm. is develop coalition, a coalition with all of these groups so that we can become stronger and assert uh, our uh, position more clearly and mobilize people more effectively. But, you know, academics are not very good at this kind of exercise. Like they're, they're okay at going right. and studying books and so on. But in terms of trying to politically organize other professors and students, uh, we're not very uh, we're not very well developed at doing that, and and I'm hoping that's what I plan to do for the next several years um, is to try to build up that kind of structure mm -hmm. so that we can take back our universities and restore them to being academic spaces instead of these activist kinds of entities. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much, Professor, for being with us today. I see our time is uh, gone, but. But I just want to um, say that I very much appreciate your willingness to stand up with your conscientiously understanding of uh, wanting to determine what the truth of matter is in all of your area of study, uh, which is something that I think we all want to uh, pursue, or at least um, those of us who are uh, wanting to encourage freedom of speech in this country. And um, it's, it, it is a battle. It is something that I think we need to, you know, also look into, okay, so how did we get here? I mean, we've, we can look back at the history and, and all the rest, as you mentioned, from the 60s. But, you know, there's just this idea that it, it, it seems to me as I look back at history, that is almost like a human characteristic that when you get a critical mass of people with a particular idea and ideas in particular are so can go viral and uh, you know, the, when we get this critical mass that people are naturally, or it seems like it's almost a natural thing where they say, Hey, we want everyone to agree with us because we're the ones who, who understand everything. And, and we saw it uh, in, in the past when it came to religious communities and, um, and other views, uh, you know, the whole experience with Galileo is just kind of like prime example, but it's like, okay, we're, we're having our own moment right now. And, and it seems that we need to be looking back at history. And I think that's extremely important. So thank you for being with us. And uh, is there a final word that you would like to share with our listeners? 
Yes, I think people need to understand how important universities are. And it is so true what mm. you were saying about sort of the tribal mentality, uh, herd mentality. And universities have been built up through hundreds of years to develop mechanisms to try to resist that. And we need universities for um, producing the professionals that, you know, occupy positions like doctors and lawyers. Um, and we need universities to be a bulwark against kind of totalitarian tribal impulses. So mm. the problem is, is that people see universities as some kind of esoteric, you know, kind of thing, which a bunch of eggheads are engaged in. But if we, if we lose universities, we are going to lose like one of the essential kinds of pieces of the enlightenment, which are so necessary containing the health of our society. Well, thanks again for being with us. I really appreciate you sharing and uh, look forward to following uh, the various cases that you're involved with and also with your academic research as we try to make sense of what's happening in our society at large. And so thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. And folks, I want to thank you for being with us and just listening in on this conversation as we're trying to make sense of uh, what's happening in this area of study that uh, Professor Wilson is involved in. And as we've mentioned many times, you know, there will be times when you agree or disagree with our uh, guests as well as with myself. Uh, but in this program, Freedom Feature, we are wanting to have open, honest, and transparent dialogue. And so that's why we're here. Uh, that's why uh, we are producing our work. And I encourage you to go to our First Freedoms website, firstfreedoms.ca. Make sure you like and subscribe to our social media. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca